Welcome to Bending the Arc, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Amy Carre, one of the co-hosts of this podcast, along with my colleague, Dr. Mark Joseph. We host and produce this podcast along with our colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. In this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Tiffany A. Manuel, who prefers to be called Dr. T. Dr. T is the president and CEO for The Case Made, an organization dedicated to helping leaders powerfully and intentionally make the case for systems change. She works with hundreds of leaders around the nation who are building strong communities that are diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Dr. T received her PhD and master's degrees from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, a master's degree in political science from Purdue University, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago. Her essay for the What Works volume is called How to Fish Sea Water, Building Public Will to Advance Inclusive Communities. I'm very excited to be able to delve into her work and insights around making the strong case for policies and investments that foster inclusive mixed income communities. Dr. T, I'm so happy to host today's Bending the Arc podcast with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's start by learning a little bit more about you. I've given the audience a sense of your bio already, but can you please fill us in on some of the things you're working on through the case made and help us understand some of your current priorities? Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much. So uh, the case made is an organization that works nationally to build strong, adaptive leaders who are able to make a strong case for the work that they are doing right on the road to justice and uh, leaders who are taking on the tough stuff, right? The big systems change kind of work, the work that requires a strong voice on equity, the work that requires a radically inclusive approach, one that recognizes that the majority of the problems that we see today are not technical problems. It's not that we don't know how to solve you know, issues of housing or issues of segregation or issues of healthcare. We know how to do that. The real issues are ones that are adaptive. Those are, those are challenges that require the collaboration of a lot of different kinds of stakeholders. They require cross-institutional, cross-sector work. Like you can't lift these big problems up without collective action at the widest possible levels. And it turns out that those problems of collective action are really tough, especially in an environment today where we have a highly politicized environment, one that it's highly disruptive, you know, educationally, economically, environmentally, right? Health-wise, right? Just really disruptive, these big disruptions. Um, racially and ethnically in terms of the world that we live is changing rapidly. We've got big demographic shifts, right? Big changes in sort of population, big shifts in a whole range of things. And we're also operating in an environment that is increasingly distrustful where people, in part because of what's happening, don't trust each other as much. So when you look at these national studies of trust and do we trust leaders and do we trust civic leaders and do we trust corporations and where the trust levels across all those institutions are coming down, it really becomes even more difficult to get at some of these large collective action problems without a very intentional, thoughtful lens. And so that's really what we do. We, we work with all kinds of leaders across the country uh, who are working on these big thorny problems where they're trying to get stakeholders to, you know, a lot rock in the same direction. And they're, and they're getting some pushback, feedback, often um, backfire on all kinds of things. And we work with them to make sure that those efforts are successful. Well, that's wonderful. I know I've um, had the benefit myself of learning from you over the years, um, particularly with the work I was doing on the cost of segregation um, in the Chicago region. And um, it really is such an important role that you have had and you continue to have in shaping the way that leaders construct narratives so that they can um, have the kinds of influence that we need them to have. So what got you here? I, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's many, many ways, um, many experiences you've had to lead you to this choice to devote your life to this work. 
Um, and I think for our audience, it would be helpful for us to just step back and hear a little bit about your trajectory from growing up in Detroit, Michigan, to pursuing multiple degrees, including your PhD from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in public policy, to now um, starting your own consulting firm. And it would just be really helpful to know, you know, did you always want to be an influencer of systems change? And, and what really led you down this pathway? So thank you for that question. I, I really just, you know, I can remember being in, even in high school, growing up in Detroit, Michigan, and I really just wanted to, things to get better for the people who lived in the community where I grew up. Um, I saw in Detroit um, just, you know, the incredibly resilient, mostly working class people at the time that I was living there, um, but resilient who were being just, you know, people who were just being knocked down and run over by careless policies and systems that were not designed for their success that were not being tailored or targeted in any particular meaningful way um, and, th and did not attend to the lives that people were actually living. And I just really remember thinking like, there's just gotta be a better way. Like I, I can see other communities, right? So the suburban ring around the city, Detroit, thriving, like there are all these beautiful homes and you know, people get to enjoy access to great schools and parks. And I, it, just, it just didn't make any sense to me that everybody, especially the folks that I, you know, in my community, they couldn't have access to those things too. And so I set off on a journey to kind of figure it out. And the only pathway that I knew to do that in was through education. It was like, I got to figure out, I thought it was a puzzle piece. Like I got to figure out how to bring more resources to this community and how can I help? And so I set out on the journey to do that. Um, education was part of it. It's certainly given me the opportunity to sit at tables that I otherwise probably would not have been, have been invited to in my career. Um, but I would say that it's also, you know, I've learned over time that it's also about sort of organizing those behind you, that folks who are, who may not have access to those tables and to help them figure out how to get access, even without, you know, a PhD and many, many years of, of study. And so that's really what, what, what brought me to this journey is trying to figure out how to make sure that everybody has access to the, to the things that need to thrive. That's all. But in my in my head, it's as simple as that. Like it, it isn't any more complicated than that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And what about certain people? Were there certain people that served as mentors or um, supporters or cheerleaders of your of your work that helped to kind of keep that light um, alive during the hard and, and tough years that, you know, no doubt have, have been part of your journey as well? Yeah, you know, I, I think in every part of my career, I think I've, I have been really lucky enough to have um, to, to have interacted with and engaged with just so many folks. I mean, I just, I mean, probably too many to name here, but I think I'd love to name just an experience. I came out of um, high school and I wanted to, I, I was, I was, I was focused on being an architect, and I had gotten accepted at the University of Michigan. Thought I was going to be an architect, and my internship um, coming out of uh, high school was in the um, mayor's office in the city of Detroit. That's when Mayor Coleman Young was the mayor. Probably many of your listeners are way too young to remember Mayor Coleman Young, but quite a polarizing figure in the, in the city's history, but he was mayor for almost 30 years and came into that office uh, during the 1960s when things were just tumultuous and just, just ran the city with, I would say, an iron fist for a, a lot of years. Um, engaged in some things that were just like, I'm just going to get it done. And some things that we would probably look at today and go, okay, well, maybe that was not the practice we'd like to recreate. Um, but what, what, what happened for me was exposure to, in that summer, the politics of municipal government and governance and the power levers and how things actually got done. Not the sort of textbook version that you read about in high school, about how the, you know, how the, the branches of government and how things function and da, 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 da. And so much of the business of what was happening in the city was not happening in a formal way that I thought, oh, there's, there's a whole world that here happening that I don't understand and know. I, I, I need to learn about that. Like this is, if this is how things actually get done, then I need to figure that out. And so anyway, my educational trajectory then went to sort of public policy and political science, mostly out of a need to sort of figure out what I clearly did not understand um, of um, coming out of that experience. And I would say my career over the long term has been really targeted at, at figuring that out and really understanding that at a level of depth um, in a way that today shows up in every single conversation I have with folks. 
There is the formal conversation, and then there's the the stuff that really happens, right? To make to make people lean forward on issues that are hard, right? The the, the tough stuff. Yeah, that's a, a really important um, time in your life. It sounds like to have um, essentially the 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 curtain open, right? And and you're seeing the the what's really behind the the show of democracy. There's the show, and then there's the you know, the, how do we write the script and much of what you're coaching and advising and helping those of us in the field to do is to write different kinds of scripts. So it is very helpful to, um, to have um, heard a little bit about how you got your start. Thank you. Well, let's turn now to your essay and the what works volume. We're so happy um, that, first of all, um, that you decided to contribute this essay. Mark and I, um, you know, we're thrilled to be able to put this edited volume together. And in one section in particular, we focus on um, voice and power. And your essay really is a shining light in that section. Your essay is titled, How Do Fish See Water? Building Public Will to Advance Inclusive Communities. And in this essay, you take on a lot. Um, It's clearly one of the more engaging and practical essays in the entire volume. And so I want to kind of take a moment to just review what you've done there and how, um, for our readers, it could be uh, an important essay for them to turn to and read as well. So first, you discuss a key challenge facing many leaders working to tackle poverty, racial inequality, and community change. And that challenge is public discourse on these issues do not move towards useful policy solutions. Because many Americans, the way that, you know, we think and we talk about these issues, we overtly blame the people who are living in disinvested neighborhoods as making poor choices, when really the evidence shows that it's the structures and the conditions that have been created through decades of government policy and private action, such as those by banks and in investment firms that have actually led to the creation of these disinvested neighborhoods. So then you present several arguments as to how to make a stronger case for equity, inclusion, and quote, the inner reliance of all racial and economic groups. And finally, you explore a specific case study and several examples as to how to flip the narrative towards these important collective interests. So I'd like to discuss each of the elements of your essay. Let's start with what is driving the challenges of public discourse and discourse within the field of housing and community development. In the essay, you write, quote, from the vantage point of housing and community development practitioners, The public discourse about the relationship between poverty, race, and place has been problematic in and of itself. Anyone who has been to a neighborhood meeting on the siting or zoning of affordable housing in the last 10 years knows well how much misinformation and implicit bias is allowed to stand in for informed deliberation. When the thorny issues of racial and economic segregation come up in the media, arise in community meetings, or require public comment in any other community forums, rarely is there enough depth of understanding to move those conversations toward useful policy solutions. Much of this has to do with the narratives that undergird public thinking about these issues. End of quote. Okay, so Dr. T, that was a big argument you make. And now I'd like you to help us kind of unpack that. Let's slow this down a little bit. What does the framing research on poverty and inequality show about the narratives Americans use to think and talk about these issues? And why is that problematic? So thanks so much for that question. Um, And before I I actually get to the specific answer to that question, I want to just even revisit the title of the paper so that people really get the nuance of what I'm trying to communicate there. I start with this because when you say, you know, how to fish see water, what does it have to do with thinking about inclusive communities? Um, It has a lot to do with that part of the issue that we're facing as we try to advance these conversations about inclusion. 
Um, so there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a story that David Foster Wallace has written. It's based on a you know bunch of probably parables of, in many different religions and many different you know uh, from many different places. But the parable goes a little bit like this: There are these two young fish, and they're swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish along the way, um, and the older fish smiles at them and says, morning boys, you know, how's the water? And the two young fish, they swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other one and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> and, and, and what's the, the, the important point about that, that's really key is that um, rarely, right, is there that I would say the acknowledgement of the environments in which we live at, at the level at which we need that to happen. So the point of the fish story is literally that the most obvious important realities are the ones that are hardest for people to see and talk about. And that's a lot of what functions as an important um, kind of predecessor to the work that I do that we're so busy sort of fighting the good fight about the policies and the issues themselves that we rarely step back to talk about the conditions that even allow those things to happen, the, 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 the impediments to action, the, um, the issues that the sort of mental models that people have for thinking about uh, these issues that have existed for long periods of time, the stories that we've told ourselves over and over again and continue to tell through our popular culture, through the, through their folklore, right? Um, or just the, just the kind of, you know, the realities of being a human person, being afraid, for example, in this moment right now, there are lots of folks who are, have a lot of anxiety about their own financial futures and what's going to happen to them. So when you say we need to put more time and interest and money into making sure that folks who are low income or folks who are people of color or whatever that is, have what they need. Right. The initial reaction, even if it's implicit and sometimes even unconscious, is well, where does that leave me? Right. But right. And so the, the conversation is unless and until we are grappling with that in as with as much intentionality as we're grappling with the policy issues, we won't be able to solve the problems of building the public will to address the very things that we say we're after. And it's one of the reasons why there is often this disconnect between the values that people hold and the commitments they make to actually solve those problems. So people will say, yes, I believe in affordable housing. In fact, if all the polling data across the country says people are wildly in favor of affordable housing. But as I say in the paper, and as you quote, as you just quoted, anybody who's ever been to a neighborhood meeting on the siting of affordable housing will tell you that the, that the very people who will tell you that they're in favor of affordable housing are also the ones who will come to that meeting and shout you down and say they don't want it in their community. So what just happened? Wait, you, you're in favor, right? The value system that you bring to this conversation is certainly on the affirmative side, but you're not willing to, right, make the kind of investment that would actually make affordable housing a reality, not just in your neighborhood, but in any neighborhood across the communities that we live. And we have to grapple with that. For those of us who are really interested in broader social change that leads to the outcomes we say we want, which is to make sure that everybody is thriving in a place where, right, they have st stable housing, where they have, you know, access to the greatest healthcare and all the things that we say we want, right? Um, then you've got to address those issues. And what I found in the work, um, more working many years in the field with, it was that, those central questions, right? The hardest part of the conversations that were not being addressed and yet, those things are the key to getting folks to lean forward. And so some of the things you just mentioned, the dominant narratives on poverty that are consistent, we know what those are, right? The sort of bootstrap mentality, the conversation about government as bad and ineffectual, that people just need to, I love the, the one I love the best and the, is, and the one that's most enduring by well-meaning people is always that poverty will be solved if people just got that plumbing job, just got that, you know, get that, Get those skilled trade jobs. And there's nothing wrong with skilled trades, but we know in many cities across the country, even a good skilled trade will not save you, right, from finding yourself in poverty, right? It just, right? Um, so those kinds of, you know, uh, dominant narratives, right, as a set of mental models are just prohibitive. And the onus is on us as adaptive leaders to understand what we're, what we're looking at very carefully and they respond very strategically. Um, so I'd love to talk even more about that. I think there are just a number of just narratives that are just challenging for us and have been over time. 
Um, and then also some things that are just dynamics that are happening in the popular culture that I don't know that we've reckoned with, like the conversation around uh, uh, um, the conversation I would say around money has shifted. It's not a conversation on people who don't have enough. It's literally the popular culture has shifted around this conversation around wealth, about what wealthy people are doing. The sort of parade of wealth is amazing. If you watch any channel, if you look at social, it's the Kardashian effect, right? It's the, right? It's, it's all of that. And it's changed people's expectations about what your goals should be, right? And what, what is the thing that young people, right? I would say, inspired to be. And if we don't understand that, we get ourselves in a real pickle. And that's, I think, what's happening in a lot of places. So I'll stop there. But I think that's a part of the challenge that we're after. That's very um, insightful and also very scary. Um, As a mom, I'm just thinking about, you know, how those narratives that um, my children, all of our children are seeing on social media, how that then affects the value systems that young people are growing up around what is the future of our country and our world when things um, such as what credit card you have or, you know, what VIP line you can get in become more important than, um, you know, how we uh, connect with each other as neighbors and colleagues. Absolutely. And can I, and I'd love to say a little bit more about that. You said at the very top, we were going to really focus on this notion of voice and power. You know, our children have absorbed the message that we're sending. And the message that we're sending is that your voice and power the, the, is, is uh, um, subsumed, right, in, in the amount of money that you have or can bring to the table, right? They got it, they, right? We, we have been telling our children that mostly through popular culture for a very long time and they got it, right? And so it, my, my conversation with the folks that, that you know, I work with in the social justice movement is, Listen, you know, culturally, that that's a whole, that's a long-term shift to begin to, to sort of peel that back. But what I say is we have to at very least be able to grapple with what we're seeing and what folks are experiencing, right? Um, especially young folks, if we want to make sure that they are lining up with the movement around social justice. That reminds me of something else, which is that um, in the past, there's been a lot of focus more on urban poverty or on racial segregation. And when we think about both of those important realities, um, quite often we are almost always focused on those who have been harmed and those who are most oppressed by um, our economic and and political systems um, that create poverty and create um, racial um, inequality. And yet the other side of that coin is really who's benefiting. Who is getting more voice and more power and more wealth from the realities um, that that we've created? And and so I think with that, I'd I'd like to to, um, draw uh, our readers' uh, attention to one of the popular narratives that you talk about in your essay. And that is the, the popular narrative about segregation. So I'm going to go ahead and highlight um, the narrative is that segregation is about people of color. The scholarly evidence though, is that segregation is a system that affects all of us. So you write, many scholars on the issue of segregation think and talk about segregation as being rooted in systems and policies that were intentionally designed to be exclusionary. To follow this line of reasoning and its implications would mean that many Americans would have to acknowledge their own or their loved ones participation in unjust systems. And they might also be led to acknowledge how they have benefited from systems that intentionally exclude other people. Looking critically at the research evidence might also mean acknowledging that people have some role to play in undoing those systems and possibly even remediating past harms to others. To avoid this situation, racial and economic segregation gets annexed in the public imagination as being solely about people experiencing poverty or about people of color rather than collectively to draw out the bigger implications for all of us. This allows many people to view any solution, 
even policies to promote equitable and, and inclusive development as being zero sum and benefiting only other people when even those policies can improve outcomes for everyone. I really, really resonate with this um, statement and as a person who is white-bodied and also as a person who lives in a more economically um, exclusive or advantaged community, um, I'm really touched by this personally. And I, I'm kind of called to really um, be a part of the larger social justice movement, not only because I think it's what others um, deserve and what is right for them, but also I ultimately believe that um, white people and people with um, economic resources are also going to benefit from the liberation um, of particularly Black Americans. And so I want to, I, I would just love for you to say a little bit more about why you think it's important to understand um, this particular narrative of um, being about improving the lives for everyone and how we're all involved um, in ending something as damaging as racial segregation and inequality. Yeah, I, I would say that's exactly right. And and I was really in the paper, really wanting to make sure that people understood the distinction, that there is a distinction between the popular conversation about these issues and then the way that those of us who study these issues understand them so that we're not sort of, you know, op we're not assuming that we are operating from the same mental models with folks that we're talking to, right? It's just, to, first of all, just acknowledge that people are using different mental models to understand these issues. So often we reach different conclusions, right? So if you want to move people, if you want to have them shift the way they think about these issues, you've got to do the work to move them to a different mental model. And the the mental model, right, and I would say that most folks in America, because it's in the culture, is that segregation, when you start talking about, especially when you put the word racial segregation in front of it, right, you telegraph the folks, oh, this is about people of color. Not If I'm not a person of color, this is not about me. So talk to those folks, right, who are facing that as an issue, right, they're not, they don't feel like they're getting access to the communities they should, and so they should do something about it. But there's nothing for me to do, because that's not my problem. And so unless and until people see themselves in the story that we're telling about this issue of segregation, they don't think it's about them. And so these, a lot of these conversations that I write in the paper are easily annexed. It's not about me, it's about you. Listen, they, and they will say, listen, I got my own problems. You know, I'm a white person's country. I got my own problems going on here. You know what I'm saying? Like nobody is at a loss for having problems in their own lives right now. Everybody's trying to deal with what they have to have to deal with. Even folks who consider themselves relatively affluent or wealthy. And so the challenge is if we're not communicating effectively about these issues, we're letting folks off the hook of seeing themselves as part of a story that they actually are writing through their behavior and their participation in the broader kind of system of, 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 um, of laws and policies that are on the books around how our communities are developed. So my kind of the opportunity in this and the way that I talk about this in this work is you gotta get people in the story and the way to do that is to speak to the aspirations that people have for their own lives and connect that back to the very folks that you think you're helping, right? Um, they say all of us wanna live in a thriving community, but here's, here's what's happening in our communities today and to show the entire spectrum, not just a small sliver and then talk about that for other folks. I would also say it's really important to do that because if you don't show the entire spectrum of, of all of us in this system, we're operating together, it allows people to easily other the folks who are quote unquote not benefiting, right, from the way in which our, our housing and community development systems are organized and shaped. There's something wrong with them. Something's going on with them. And those are other, right, people, not the folks who live next door to me in my uh, suburban community. So, so one of the things that I'm working with, I have a very good friend, probably most folks on, who are listening to this know Richard Rothstein wrote The Color of Law. He and I and a group of folks um, have put our heads together to, to begin to start what we're calling the new movement, the new movement to redress racial segregation. And it's an opportunity to start organizing multiracial um, coalitions of average everyday people, not policy wongs, not you know, researchers like myself and social scientists, like, right? But just average everyday folks who, uh, particularly hearing his message about 
the color of law and what's happened in communities are sort of getting awakening for the first time to a lot of things that they thought were um, de facto. People just kind of like to live in next to each other and they're finding out this whole series of systems that were organized specifically to segregate communities across this country. And to organize those, so when they call, show up to Richard's talks and they say, hey, we want to do something about this, um, to start organizing those folks. And for a lot of the folks in my work as well, who are trying to talk about these issues and to get people to listen, but are being caught, right, in this, in this public narrative that, yeah, but that's not about me, it's about those folks, what they should be, right? So together, we're, we're putting together this uh, sort of new movement to try and get at these very issues that you got to get people to lean forward across the entire system, not just the folks that you assume are not are not being advantaged by uh, the set of laws and policies on the books to address some of these issues of these issues of racial segregation. Much of your work does shape narratives, and for those of our listeners who haven't had a chance to hear the narratives themselves, I think many have because they've been in those community meetings or they've been at the school board meetings or they've um, heard it from, you know, members of their churches. Uh, you know, those are narratives that that are certainly around us. Um, I, what I want to hear are the new narratives, the new narratives that you're coaching people to embrace and you're helping people understand um, different kinds of language or different focus that they can have. And so what I want to do now is play a recording of a video that you helped to produce that has a particular focus on housing justice and its value for an entire region and for people across different identities, such as race and income and neighborhood background. And while it's focused on the Bay Area, I think it's definitely relevant to many other geographies that have rising affordability challenges, um, just like the one I live in here in Chicago. So I'm going to go ahead and play about a minute, minute and a half of it, and then ask you to kind of highlight why you think this particular narrative is useful and how you would want to advise our listeners to adopt some of these narratives in their own work. Amy, thank you so much for, for that. And, and I'd love to just even set this up for your listeners as they're listening to what they are talking to. First of all, this comes out of some fantastic work we did in the Bay Area uh, with the Shift the Narrative Table, which has a group of a fantastic coalition of folks who've been working really, 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 really hard on issues of narrative over a wide range of um, uh, about the last, I would say, two years. And, and this is the culmination of some of, of some work that, we, that, that I've been doing with that group. And what I'd love for your listeners to listen for are the kinds of things that are really important, right? We know from an evidence-based perspective to have people lean forward. Starting, for example, with talking about what they love by starting from a place of appreciative inquiry, right? Um, what they love about where they live, what makes it magical fun, like what, what connects them to a sense of place, right? So often our narratives start with this doom and gloom, the, the sky is falling, you know, housing costs burden, nobody can, I mean, it's like, oh my God, like, right? So you listen for the way that we start with what we love about the places we live. Then talking a little bit about what we're afraid to lose, right? What's so magical, important, exciting, thoughtful in this community that, we don't want to lose it. We have to act now. Conversation about the urgency and the, naming the power of this moment to shape our future. Being very clear that we're talking about systems change, right? Not individual level programs here and there. Like we're talking about really thinking about how we engage in systems. You hear a lot of we, like this bigger sense of collective agency and identity, um, and this conversation about centering equity. We, we love the, the Bay, Bay Area. Area. Diverse communities, beautiful surroundings, vivid history, innovation and industry, incredible arts, culture, food, and more. But everything we love about the Bay Area is at risk. It's becoming harder and harder for people to find a decent place to live. These are families, students, working people, our friends and neighbors, and they are being displaced from the homes they love. This didn't happen by accident. And it doesn't have to be this way. To build the future we deserve, we have to acknowledge how we got here. Generations of exclusionary policies and institutional racism have created an unjust housing system which falls hardest on communities of color. We must change course 
for the sake of the people and businesses who make their homes here, and for the next generation of Bay Area residents. We need to be bold enough, courageous enough, ambitious enough to embrace the cause of housing justice for all. Housing justice is about dismantling the structural challenges that harm our communities and hold the Bay Area back. Housing justice is about spending less energy struggling to find a decent home to rent or buy, and more energy caring for our families. Putting our entrepreneurial spirit into action and supporting thriving neighborhoods. It's about protecting and celebrating everything we love about the Bay Area. Residents, community leaders, and policymakers all have a role to play. Creating change begins by shifting the ways we think and talk about housing. What kind of community do we want to be? Who does housing policy serve in our community, and who gets to decide? What could the Bay Area be like if everyday people—workers, parents, and elders, black and brown people, indigenous and white neighbors—could afford a quality place to live in a community they love? Local leaders, national experts, activists, and residents have come together to drive this change. We have developed a research-led and field-tested playbook to drive that shift among residents, community leaders, and policymakers. We need you to help put those resources into action. Okay. Wow. Such a powerful message. There was so many elements of it that I really appreciate. Um, one of which was that um, there was this real idea that we're in this together. And you use terms like neighbors and friends and elders. Um, you call out um, the importance of the systems that we all live in, and some of whom of us benefit more than others. And yet um, we're all here meeting the same types of healthy, strong, inclusive, and equitable communities. So how, since you've launched this, what's been the, the impact and the effect? Uh, it would be helpful to know um, in, in its implementation, what kind of feedback you've gotten. Yeah, so I'll say that we're just sort of launching this now. So we haven't gotten a lot of feedback yet. But I will say that what you just heard was based on a whole lot of uh, very intentional research. Um, and a lot of which was done just listening to, to people in the Bay Area talk about the Bay Area. What, like, listen, like literally having those conversations with hundreds of folks across the Bay Area and listening for the things they talked about listening for the things that kept them up at night and, and listening for the things that made them motivated to lean forward, as I said before, on the hard stuff. And then basically mirroring that back. So the language that you heard in there is a mirror, right, to what we heard. So that it's calling, we wanted people to really hear themselves in that video and in that audio. We wanted people to say, hey, that's something I, 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 think, I, I think I probably said that, right? Because we wanted them to have the language, right? to have it sound exactly the way that we've heard people in the Bay Area telling that to us. And so that's why you, you hear uh, the kind of phrasing that you heard in there, but neighbors and friends. We heard a lot about entrepreneurship and businesses and people being concerned about, you know, the small mom and pop businesses being pushed out in the bakery that they love on the corner or the little, the little bookstore that they have always gone to. And they were concerned about right, their neighbors and, that was the thing that they got really upset about, right? And so if that's the thing that people are afraid to lose, then, then that's what you use to pull them forward on the hard stuff, right? I always say that if you don't know what people are afraid to lose, then you don't have what you need to pull them forward. You don't know, right? The, the, the thing that makes somebody motivated, right? To show up at a meeting, right? And have something positive to say about the potentiality of a more inclusive community. You don't have it if you don't know what they're afraid to um, lose. And so you see that conversation woven throughout that one. Now, what's interesting about that is we do this all over the country. And so if I shared with you a video that we did in Chattanooga or the one that we did for DC or other places, completely different, right? In what ways? Well, completely different because the ways that people think about their community, the what they get out of it, what they love about their town is totally different, right? The topography is different. The neighborhoods are different. The, the feel of being there, what, what draws them and keeps them there is different. Um, the tonality, the kinds of language that fits in one place, right, will, will not fit in another one. And I would say even things as interesting as like just centering equity 
in everything we do, equity is center. But the way you heard us call that out in this one, being very explicit about, about race, about structural racism, about those kinds of issues, when we're doing work in Chattanooga or in Sandy Springs, Georgia, right, we're calling that out, but we may talk about that a little bit differently because we know if you want to get folks to hear that message, you got to give them a little bit of a longer runway to get there with you. So counseling folks about, don't back away from that conversation, get after it, but know that you've got to get people in that conversation. You got to give them a longer runway to get there with you by talking about the benefits of what comes out of um, a conversation about looking at race differently. So, so it, what's interesting about this is you go to different places, you listen for that very carefully, what's happening in the way people think about this issue, the mental models they use to think about this place, and what's the stuff that excites them, engages them, what's stuff that they're afraid to lose, what's the kind of language that makes them understand that this is a local effort, this is about my neighbors, my friends, and the way we talk to one another and not right, some, you know, you know, pull it, you know, store bought message off, you know, off the, off the shelf of, you know, some holster, right. It just reminds me so much um, about the year, the last year and a half we've had um, in terms of the number of corporations and large institutions that have come out with statements um, in writing, declaring their commitment uh, to be a part of the racial justice movement, and at the same time, um, making choices of how to maximize their corporation's image as walk in the walk. So, for example, um, I was, you know, visited Target um, during you know Black History Month, and you know the first uh, clothes and and bags and hats that I saw that month um, being advertised were were um, really centering blackness. And it was interesting to see such a big corporation like Target doing so. Um, I think there's a lot of advantages to the all-in message and having many, um, you know, messaging across different types of, of audiences and across different kinds of corporations. And yet, one question that I think a lot of us have is what difference is it going to make? Is this um, commitment one that's real? And authentic and coming from a deep place of desire for change? Or is this message just because this is the latest, you know, hip thing to be able to say, hey, you know, we're woke. So with that, it would be just helpful to hear a little bit about um, narrative framing and how it has changed and continues to change in light of the radical disruptions in our world and the way that narratives are evolving in our current context of this current racial justice movement. Yeah, that is a that is a fantastic question. And I have a couple of different things I think about that. You asked whether it was, you know, for some of these organizations, you're happy to see a little bit. And I think for a lot of us, happy to see folks acknowledge just issues of diversity and difference. Like, for God's sake, can you just like, <laughs> can we just acknowledge that there are other folks, not just African-Americans, but I mean, this is an incredibly beautifully diverse nation, one of the most diverse in the world. And so let's not only celebrate that, but let's talk about what it means to live in a place right, where, where so much of that diversity is represented. So on one on the one hand, it is useful um, to see that. Um, but for lots of folks who are, are, are celebrating that, we know that it is largely a, um, uh, uh, a presentation, it's, it's, for, it's for effect of presentation rather than the sort of depth of the value system. And I would say that it's up to us to make sure that that, that, that what might have started as just a kind of opportunity to, to, to run with the pack. And if everybody else is saying, talking about racial equity and diversity, et cetera, let's run with that too. It might have started that way. But it's up to us to make sure that that is meaningful in some way, shape, or form. That's the work, right, of systems change. Like we're not not just about naming it or talking about it. We want to be doing something about it. And so I would say probably one of the biggest challenges for those of us who've been in this movement for a long time is you've we've got the wind at our back around some of these basic. The conversation is on the table. The question is now what gets done at that table, right? The decisions that get made to make sure that we're moving action forward. And in that respect, I would say a couple of things. You know, one of the things that I'm always about, even in the clients, even with the clients that we bring on at the case made, is we vet our clients, right? So 
which when they when we have a conversation about issues of equity and they want us to work with them on developing a way of engaging folks on these issues, we, we call it the first mile issue. We want to make sure the first mile is that we understand what your strategy is with respect to these issues. Do you really have a strong lens where you're actually doing something or not? And if you're not, we'll say, well, go do that first and then come back to us, right? When you actually have something, right, to engage folks about. Otherwise, right, I wish everybody would do that, but that's a part of first, what we call the first mile problem. Let's just deal with that first. <laughs> when you got that, come back and work with it. But the second thing we've done is really to, often we've got an organization that's really, they're almost there, but just they need an extra push. We'll actually work with them to develop some really thoughtful, careful metrics around these issues. So for example, CapShift is an organization that makes impact investing across the entire country. It's got thousands of impact investments, the platform. Uh, we did a paper with them, really helping them to develop a racial equity lens that helped them to see the benefit of some investments at one end of the spectrum as being about diversity and representational kinds of issues with what we're talking about, right? That's kind of step one for those organizations and corporations that have just come to that moment. Great. We're glad to have you and, and keep going. <laughs> step two is about the equity journey where, you, where you're getting rid of some of the barriers that folks are facing, trying to get decent housing and a great community, get health healthcare, et cetera. Step two is what are you doing in that respect? And we have a set of metrics that help us to map that out and to find out if the kinds of investments you're making actually get to those kinds of issues. And for those folks who are at step two, great. We're glad to have you. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And then there are certain organizations that are really talking about, you know, justice, a justice framework, which is a set of metrics that really are about measuring whether the kinds of impact or the kinds of investments you're making are having an impact on the systems that determine, right, where, when, and how we live. And so being able, even for those folks who come and say, hey, we were waving the flag around racial equity, we want to say, wait, 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 right, let's look at what you're actually doing and figure out where you are on that trajectory. Not even in a judgmental way, even for those folks at level one, so Target, great, I love the bags, love the, (laughs) whatever else you're doing, but keep going. And let's be very clear where you are. You're not, you don't have a racial equity lens. What you have is a lens on diversity. That's an important lens, but that's level one. Let's keep going. So I think, you know, you know, my, my assessment on this is that, that, you know, it, the, the issues of racial equity, issues of racial segregation, all these kinds of issues are on the table, but it's up to us, the folks who do this work very thoughtfully to make sure that our partners, friends, and allies understand this as a journey right, that goes from one end of the spectrum all the way out, and to help our friends and colleagues, like the folks at Target, <laughs> and every other, right, to, to continue along on that journey so that it's really, so that their conversation matches up with the actions that they're actually taking. And I think everything we can do, if we're, if we're doing that work really well, then we'll be able to solve some of these issues that we're talking about. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Well, I've got one last question for you. We've called this podcast Bending the Arc to reflect the work that we believe we each have to do to help bend the arc of the moral universe towards justice. We are closing out our conversations in this podcast series by asking our guests for two action steps. One action step that they will commit to personally and one action step that they would encourage others. So I would love to hear what would you share as your personal action step and as an action step for others? Yeah. So in terms of my personal action step, it's something that is near and dear to my heart. As a mom of two young boys, African-American young men who are young and strapping and smart and all the things that, you know, mom would hope for, for, for her sons. um, It's really, it's really having them, understand and acknowledging how we got here. I do not ever want to send my boys out into the world being ill-prepared, not just for the world that they're meeting, but understanding kind of how we got here, right? That, being able to navigate that and the skill set around that, I think is really important. And I would hope that other folks, that I'm inviting other folks in my personal and professional networks to do the same, that young people are going to inherit from us only the things that we pass on. 
And so let's pass on the good stuff, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Sort of drive and enthusiasm for, for social justice, but also an acknowledgement of sort of what it took to get us here and what it takes to move us forward. And professionally, I would say, really in line with the work that I do professionally is, you know, bringing other strong organizations and institutions to the table, right? Bringing them along with us. We were just talking about Target. We could name any number of organizations, but, you know, think about the wide range of organizations that you work with, some in your professional life, some in your personal life, you know, always asking the question, is there an opportunity to influence these organizations to be even more impactful in terms of how we address some of these issues? And sometimes that's as small as, you know, having a couple conversations with the folks in the, that you know in that organization. Sometimes it's as big as participating in a protest and all kinds of things, whatever, whatever that looks like in your personal space or in your professional space, being very intentional about the need to bring other people forward. Um, that's the only way we get, right? We move some of these issues, right? You got to get people moving in the right direction and being willing to roll up their sleeves and do the work. Absolutely. And doing that work with a sense of purpose and intention and also a sense of joy and excitement and hope. And I, I just have always felt that your writing and your voice in the field has been so important for being able to shed um, the truth and 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 truth tell, but truth tell with an, a commitment also to celebrate and honor um, the incredible strengths and resilience um, among all of us, but particularly um, those those folks that um, help bring you forth and in, into who you are, doing the hard work you're doing, Dr. T. So I I'm very thankful for your contribution to our podcast. I'm very thankful for your contribution to the field, and I look forward to continuing to learn and grow from your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Dr. T for joining me on this episode of Bending the Arc. Her essay on making a stronger case for policies and investments that foster equity and inclusion is just one of almost 40 essays in our volume on mixed income communities available for your reading pleasure online. You can find them on our website at nimc.case.edu. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Funding for this podcast series is provided by the Ford Foundation and funding for the What Works volume was provided by the Kresge Foundation. Thank you for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with anyone who you think will enjoy it. And we hope you will join us for future podcast episodes. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.